Well, good morning. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If uh, we've not yet had a chance to meet, really glad that you are here. As Pastor Joe mentioned, we have been going through the book of Hebrews now for some months. Book of Hebrews, uh, the sermon series, we've called it The Sermon God Wrote because the book of Hebrews was originally a sermon that was then transcribed and turned into a letter and sent uh, throughout the region. And it's the sermon God wrote because we don't know who the human author is. It's anonymous to us, but we do know that all scripture is given by God, amen? And it's useful for us, profitable for us. And so we've been going through the book of Hebrews now for several months, and we'll be in it for uh, the majority of this year. This week, the reason why we're gonna go back into Genesis is because in Hebrews, the author is gonna spend a significant amount of time talking about a man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a very interesting, uh, kind of mysterious figure. He only appears in a couple of spots in the Bible, but the author of Hebrews is gonna make a really big deal out of Melchizedek. And so when we were thinking and praying and talking about this sermon series as an elder team, we thought, heck, it's so long of a sermon series already. What's one extra week? Let's go back into Genesis 14 and let's spend some time really looking at the story of Melchizedek, which really ends up being a story more about Abraham. And let's make sure that we really know this story because the author of Hebrews is going to assume that his hearers know the story. So that's why we're in Genesis and not in Hebrews. This week, what I'd like to do is I'd like to read kind of our key verses in 14 verses 17 through 20. I'd like to pray, and then we'll spend some time getting to work on this story. Read with me if you would. After his return from the defeat of Ketoleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a 10th of everything. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you're a communicating God, that we are not left guessing, we are not left in the dark as to who you are and what you have done. But God, you tell us plainly in the pages of the scripture. And God, today I'm particularly thankful that um, this, this book contains stories which are connected to the largest story, the greatest story ever told. God, the, the story of you, rescuing and saving and redeeming people out of sin, out of death, out of folly into a right relationship with you, out of death and into life, out of sin and into salvation. God, we, we wanna get caught up in this story. And today as we read this story from the pages of Genesis, I pray you would help us to be mindful of our place in the story that you're writing right now. And may we be mindful of the hero of the story whose name is Jesus I pray you'd guard my lips, help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word and give us all soft and teachable hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. I wanna ask you about how you make choices in life. When you're faced with a decision, when you're faced with a choice, how do you make that choice? 
That's a big topic of discussion. We could do a whole sermon series on making godly choices. You can go to bookstores and you can find whole sections of the bookstore with, with books on how to make good decisions with your relationships, how to make good decisions in your finances, how to make good decisions with your eating or your fitness or, or purchasing real estate. How you make decisions is a big topic of conversation. Some of you have been living with the ramifications of decisions that you made in the past. Some of you are, are very painfully aware that certain decisions have lingering effects. Some of you are coming here this morning feeling sad about decisions you just made last night, wishing you could have done things differently, wishing you had a do-over. Maybe you say, oh, it's just my, my personality led me to make this decision or my experiences led me to make this decision. Maybe you had someone giving you advice or counsel at the time. You said, I'm gonna make this choice based on this advice or this counsel. But now looking back, you wish you could do things differently. Sometimes we make choices differently when we're feeling really low. And have you ever experienced this? You're you're going through a difficult season. You're going through tough circumstances. Life is not going smoothly. You find yourself kind of at the, the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, and then you end up making poor choices because you're seeking some sort of comfort or some sort of joy. You know, it's interesting. We sometimes don't think about this. I think we think about making decisions when we're at the bottom. How many of you have ever made a poor decision when you were at the top of the world? Things have been going great. You just got a raise. You're starting to feel good about life. You're starting to feel good about the circumstances you're living in. And all of a sudden, that ever so present temptation to slip into pride takes place in your heart and you make foolish decisions because you're feeling good. I know nobody here has ever done that, but we've heard about people, right? Life's decisions, the choices we make, such an important topic. Today in this passage, in this story we're reading, we see that Abram, later called Abraham, but here at this point in the story, he's still called Abram, is faced with a choice. And he's faced with a choice when he is at the top of his game. Abram is having a great day and a choice is presented to him and how he chooses the decision he makes is gonna have large scale ramifications. Today, the passage we're looking at, it introduces Melchizedek, but really the story is more about Abram. And so the sermon will be more about Abram. We'll introduce Melchizedek and we'll spend more time talking about him next week and his relation to, to Jesus. But today is really more about Abram. And so if you're kind of putting yourselves in the, in the shoes of anyone today, you can think more about Abram than Melchizedek. But let me just start by giving a little backstory about Abram. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the story of the Old Testament. And for those of you who are familiar, this will be refresher. God chose Abram for no reason other than God's grace and mercy. And he said to Abram, I am going to love you. I'm going to bless you. I am going to multiply your offspring and your descendants will become a great nation. And that nation will end up blessing all of the other nations of the earth. God made a promise to Abraham, a one-way unilateral promise to Abram. I'm gonna give you a great many offspring and your offspring will bless all the peoples of the earth. There was just one problem. Remember what that problem was? Abram and his wife, Sarah, had no kids. 
it's kind of hard to multiply your offspring when there are zero. I'm no math major, but zero times anything is still uh, zero, right? And Abram and Sarah are old. They're, they're well past child-rearing years. This is going to take a miracle. Well, fortunately, Abram served a miracle-working God. Now, God makes this promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. The story that we're focusing on today is, is in Genesis chapter 14. So this is still early in the story of Abram. I want to pick it up briefly in Genesis 13 to give just a little bit more backstory about what's going on. Here we find Abram and his nephew, Lot. They're working together, they're traveling together, and some conflict breaks out. Verse 7 of Genesis 13 says this, There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. So they, they each have their herds, they're both businessmen, and their employees are fighting with each other. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. Abram is wanting to be a peacemaker between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we're relatives, we're bros, let's not fight. And he says, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. Hey, let's spread out. There's plenty of land. There's plenty of place to let the sheep graze. Let's spread out. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now that's an important detail as we'll see as the story unfolds. And yes, it is that Sodom. We haven't gotten to the part in Genesis where God destroys the city of Sodom for its wickedness, but it is that Sodom and it should be known that the city of Sodom had a reputation even back then as being a city of great wickedness. The people there did not fear God. They did not honor God. But Lot chose to go set up camp at the headquarters of his business kind of near Sodom. Now, we pick it up in chapter 14, verse 1. And by the way, there are a lot of names and at some point during the sermon, I will probably call on a few of you to just attempt to try these names, mostly for the amusement of your friends and community groups sitting around you. I'm going to say them quickly and confidently, and hopefully you'll believe that I know what I'm doing here. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedoleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. How am I doing so far? Pretty good. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabir, that's a good one for any of you expectant moms to consider, Shemabir, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Now here's, here's the important part. We got four kings versus five. Here's, here's what's going on. For 12 years, they had served Chedoleomer. And I'm just going to call him King Cheddar because, because he's the big cheese. Uh, I, will put, I will put a dollar in the dad joke jar when I get home. He's the, he's the reigning king over the region. He has his group of three other kings. So there's this team of four under the leadership of King Cheddar and, and this group of other five. I'm, I'm not joking. I'm going to use that. Uh, the other five have been serving him and paying tribute. You have to understand they're paying money for 12 years. It says though in the 13th year, they rebelled. No more. 
We're done paying tribute to King Cheddar. We're done with him. We're going to break out on our own in the 13th year. Now, in the 14th year, so King Ketolamer gives him a year to kind of flex a little bit. But, verse 5 says, In the 14th year, Ketolamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtoreth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. That, that probably doesn't mean a lot to you. These are unfamiliar names and cities and places, but here's the big idea. If you want just one big idea, it is an epic beatdown. King Cheddar comes in and just annihilates the whole, the whole region. It's not that funny. He just annihilates the entire region. And actually, verse 7 drives the, the point home even further. Then they turned back. So he's on his way back home. And they came to En-Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. So on their way back home, they just conquered two other people groups just for fun. Just for fun. This is a Seahawks over the Broncos type of beat down, right? Like this is an absolute annihilation of these rebellious kings, these rebellious people groups who dare oppose the mighty King Cheddar. <laughs> now, verse eight, listen to this part. Then, so this is then, the king of Sodom, this is another, another story. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Ketolamer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. This is yet another battle. The king of Sodom and his crew says, hey, let's try again. Let's try again. There's five of us and only four of them. Let's see one more time if we can break free from the rule of King Ketolamer. Let's see if we can uh, establish our dominance in the region. What is the, how's the saying go? You know, the definition of insanity is trying the same thing again and expecting different results. It's kind of where we're headed here. These five rebellious kings say, we're done. We're, we're standing up for ourselves. Four kings against five, verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim, was full of bitumen pits, that's tar pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, time out, where was the battle? Hey, we're gonna go stand up, we're gonna go, oh, now they're just fleeing. It did not go well for them. It says they, they fled, and as they fled, some of them fell into these bitumen pits, and the rest fled to the hill country. They are tucking tail and running. Some commentators and some scholars think that the kings and the people falling into the bitumen pits, it wasn't that they were accidentally falling in. They were diving in, hiding, covering themselves with tar until the enemies would go away and then they were emerging from their hiding place. This is, this is round two of an epic beatdown. Epic beatdown. The enemy, verse 11, this is... Ketolamer, the enemy then took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So King Cheddar says, I'm gonna prove to you guys a point. I'm gonna go into your towns. I'm gonna go into your cities. I'm gonna take everything. 
I'm not just gonna defeat you in battle. I'm going to wipe out your supplies. I'm gonna wipe out all your possessions and I'm gonna walk away rich. Now, verse 12, this is where he messes up. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. Notice now he's not just dwelling near Sodom, he's dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. So you have to understand this, this group of kings led by King Ketolamer have now asserted their dominance in the region, not just once, but twice. And it has been in absolutely convincing fashion. You need to understand that because what happens next is now that much more miraculous and that much more surprising when you understand just how dominant this coalition of kings were. Now, one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew. Side note, that's the first time in the Bible that the word Hebrew is used. And it's pointing to us again, God's faithfulness to Abram, that, that God is going to take Abram and turn him into a great nation, a great people group. From that people group would come one who would bless all of the people of the world. So one who had escaped from the battle came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, the brother of Eshal and Anur, and these were allies of Abram. So Abram has some, some friends. Abram has some allies. They come and tell him. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. Now, just pause for a minute. Abram, first of all, this is cool because we don't see Abram in this light really ever in the scriptures. This is Abram, the warrior. This isn't just Abram, the businessman. This isn't Abram, the father or, you know, grandfather, you know, Father Abraham. None of you were here last week when Pastor Travis was singing Father Abraham during his microphone sound check. It was glorious. Uh, I want to capture that on video sometime. Father Abraham, I mean, he's, he's uh, the patriarch. He's, he's a leader. He's a businessman. We don't see him in this warrior perspective very often. But apparently he's doing pretty well for himself. 318 soldiers as part of his security team. These are his trained men born in his house, part of his entourage, part of his people group. He has 318 soldiers. That's pretty good. Wouldn't you agree? Is it pretty good compared to four kings who just dominated the entire region? I would dare say not. Nevertheless, it says he went, took his trained men, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That's a region in the area. Verse 15, and he divided his forces against them by night. So Abram's getting sneaky. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Anytime in the Bible that you see that language of pursuing when it's in a battle, that means not only did we win, but now we're chasing you down. We're running up the score, right? We're pursuing them. Then he brought back all the possessions and he also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. You guys, do you see how amazing this is? King Ketolamer has just 
asserted his dominance over the region for over a decade. Not one, but two rebellions he has crushed. Abram takes a couple of hundred of dudes, sneaks up on them in the night, splits up into different groups and wipes them out and takes back all of the people, all of the provisions and all of the plunder. Abram is having a great week. Abram has just, he's got all the bragging rights. He gets to go back to his, his area that he was hanging out by the, by the tree of memories, hanging out. He's got all these extra people around. He's got all this money. He's got all these provisions. He's got all these possessions. He's feeling good. You have to imagine he's feeling pretty good. But then starting in verse 17, we see that Abram's gonna be faced with a choice. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Ketolamer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Now the king of Sodom is going out probably to say thank you, maybe to pay some respect. Wow, Abram, we tried to rebel against King Ketolamer and we didn't do so well. You gotta imagine maybe the king of Sodom still has some tar on him from hiding out. Hey, Abram, let me make you a deal. King of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Hey, Abram, I want the people back, the people who live in Sodom, the people who are part of my city, but you can keep all of the money, all of the possessions, everything that Ketolamer stole from us, you get to just keep it all. Don't know exactly how much this is, but you have to figure it's a large sum of money. The king of Sodom is coming out and offering Abraham a deal, offering him Thanks. Now, verse 18, something shocking and surprising happens. Another king appears, kind of out of nowhere. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Uh, sorry, did I miss something? Have we been talking about Salem? Have we mentioned anything about Melchizedek? No, he just in the narrative, he appears out of nowhere. He brought out bread and wine. And then this is shocking. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. What an unexpected interruption. Here's Abram, okay? Put yourself in his place. You have just defeated the most tough king in the entire region. You have all these extra people looking at you, probably very thankful. Thank you for rescuing us from that king. You have all this money sitting in piles, bags and bags of possessions and goods. One king, the king of Sodom, comes out and says, hey, let me give you a ton of money. And then this other king comes out and says, let me give you bread and wine and a blessing from God. You know, in the cartoons, when they show, you know, the guy sitting there with the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder, I kind of a little bit picture Abram in that sort of a situation. I've got these two kings right in front of me, the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. One offering me nothing, just bread and wine, and one offering me a great amount of wealth. What's Abram gonna do? Let me push pause on the narrative for a minute. And I wanna address Melchizedek 
because I want us to understand a few things about him. The subject of much discussion. First thing I want you to know about Melchizedek is he's simply a mysterious figure. He, he just appears out of nowhere here. He appears out of nowhere and no detail is given. How did he become a king? How did he become a priest? You know, in the Old Testament, when somebody's important, they usually give you a list of their family. This person gave birth to that person. This person begat that person. You guys know those lists in the Old Testament? There's nothing like that for Melchizedek. But he's an important figure. No information is given about what he does after this. He shows up, he has a meal with Abram, he prays a blessing, and then he's gone. Disappeared from the narrative. No more Melchizedek. He's very mysterious. He's so mysterious, in fact, that throughout the years, various people groups have tried to fill in the gaps on Melchizedek. Some of the early rabbis in the Jewish tradition would speculate that Melchizedek was an angel. He was simply a messenger that showed up from God and, and blessed Abram and then kind of moved on. He was an angel. Well, there's no evidence in the text to support that, but that's one speculation. Another speculation is that Melchizedek is actually Shem, the son of Noah. I don't know if you knew that. The, there's a group called the Essenes. They lived right around the time in between the Old and New Testament. They speculated that he was Shem, the son of Noah. We don't know why they speculated that, but that's what they speculated. Uh, the chronology could kind of work out. The Bible does say that Shem worshiped God most high. But other than that, the evidence is really scarce. If you fast forward after the time of Jesus in Christian scholarship and Christian thought, some people believe that Melchizedek, because he looks so much like Jesus, so many of the descriptions of him could also apply to Jesus. Some have speculated that Melchizedek is actually a pre-incarnate appearing of the Son of God. Thousands of years before the Son of God took on human form and was born as the man Jesus, thousands of years before that, he made an appearance looking human to Melchizedek. I think there will be some really compelling reasons we'll see next week in Hebrews chapter seven why that's not the case. But that's one of the range of, that's one of the options within the range of possibility. All that to say, he's very mysterious. In fact, Melchizedek is responsible for kind of starting a, a, a sect of Judaism, if you were, almost a cult, the Melchizedek fan club. They were obsessed with Melchizedek and he was their patron saint and he was the guy that they would look to. Melchizedek has caused a lot of speculation over the years. But despite all that speculation, there are a few things we can know about him. Number two, he's the king of Salem. And that word Salem is interesting for a few reasons. First of all, you have to understand in the Hebrew language, they don't have vowels the same way that we have. When you take out the vowels and you just have the consonants, it's shalom the word for peace. He's the king of peace. Is there someone else who's spoken of as being the king of peace, the prince of peace? What's also interesting is that word Salem, most scholars believe that this is an early reference to the city of Jerusalem, that he is the king of the city that would eventually become the city where David is the king, would eventually be the city where Jesus is, preaches and is crucified and is buried and rises again, there's a connection there with the city of Jerusalem. Number three, we know that he is the king of righteousness. And we know this because of his name. 
Again, if you break apart his name and you study uh, in the lang- original languages, we know that names have meaning in the Bible. His name is Melch, Melchi, which means king, and Zedek, which means righteousness. He is the king of righteousness, which means he is not a wicked king, very contrasting to the king of Sodom. Would you agree? Think about the reputation of Sodom. Here's the king of Sodom. You would not call him the king of righteousness. His town is about to get nuked in a couple of chapters. But here we have the king of Salem, who is, his name literally means the king of righteousness. Number four, the text tells us that he is a priest of the most high God. Now, you have to understand how shocking that claim would be to the first readers of this book. The first hearers of the book of Genesis were the people of Israel led by Moses. God gave a law to Moses and under that law, God says only people who are descended from the tribe of Levi can be priests. Only them. And priests cannot be kings. Kings cannot be priests. They are two very separate groups of people. You've got to, in the words of the theologian's offspring, keep them separated, right? You have to have two different, you'll get that later. He's a priest and he's a king. This would be absolutely shocking to the original hearers. In fact, if you read in the book of 1 Samuel, King Saul, the first king over Israel, was removed, he was cut off from being the king and his family line was cut off from being king specifically because he tried to offer sacrifices and do priestly duties, which he was forbidden to do. And yet here, the text clearly tells us he's the king of Salem and he's a priest of the most high God. Some people would say, well, maybe he was a priest of like a pagan God. No, he is a priest of the most high God. When Abram speaks in a minute, you'll see he uses the same exact language to speak of his God. Number five, Melchizedek is greater than Abram. Melchizedek is greater than Abram. How can I say this? First of all, Melchizedek blesses Abram. And in this culture and in this time, the one who does the blessing is seen as greater. What's more, Abram gives money to Melchizedek. He pays him a tribute. And again, in this culture, the one who receives the money, the one who receives the tribute is greater. The writer of Hebrews is going to go to great lengths when we get back into Hebrews next week to show us just how Melchizedek is greater than Abram. Number six, he's only mentioned in one other Old Testament passage. He's only mentioned here in Genesis 14, He's mentioned in Psalm 110 and he's mentioned a little bit in Hebrews. By the way, Hebrews is the only book in the New Testament that talks about Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews makes a big deal out of him. Let me just show you in Psalm 110 very briefly what David says. You have to fast forward now a few thousand years. King David is writing this Psalm. The Lord, that's Yahweh, that's God, says to my Lord, that's interesting. What's the Lord that David is looking to? David is the king. He is the Lord. Well, there's another king that's going to be coming. There's an anointed king. There's going to be a Messiah who's going to come. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord, Yahweh, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely 
on the day of your power, the people are gonna love you, David's saying. This new king who's coming, this anointed Messiah, the people are gonna just love you. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Paraphrase that. This new king is gonna be awesome. The people are gonna love this new king. We can't wait for this new king. David's great. There's even a better king coming. Wow. Verse four, David says this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, imagine the first hearers of this psalm. What are you saying, David? That is a breaking of the law. How can the king be a priest? He can't be both. Yeah, but it's like Melchizedek. Remember him? He was a king and a priest. This new king, this one who's, who's to come, this Messiah, this anointed one, he's gonna be both. Which leads me to my seventh point about Melchizedek, which you have already seen coming and I've already hinted at. He points us to Jesus as a type of Jesus. That word type is a theological term. What it means is that throughout the pages of the Old Testament, there are all sorts of people and there are all sorts of stories and there are all sorts of customs that serve to point us to Jesus. I have known quite a few Christians in my life who are afraid of the Old Testament. The stories don't make sense. The, the, the rituals seem strange. The people seem unrelatable. But here's the thing. No Christian should ever fear the Old Testament. Amen? Because when rightly understood, all of these people and all of these stories and all of these rituals serve to point us as a signpost to Jesus. Melchizedek serves as a type for Jesus. And when we dive back into Hebrews chapter seven, we're going to see it clearly. Now, in this story, Melchizedek shows up as a type of Jesus for Abraham. Abraham is faced with this choice, remember? I've got all this money and all this possessions coming at me from, from the king of Sodom. You can almost call it dirty money. I've got all this offer of provision and yet all of a sudden this one comes out and all he does is give me bread and wine. All he does is pray for me and remind me of the promises that God made. God promised Abram. God says, I will bless you. God says, I will take care of you. God says, I will turn your offspring into a great nation. You don't need to grasp for things. I will take care of you. And yet here comes the king of Sodom saying, I'll give you money. I'll bless you. I'll provide for you. Just let me have the people back, but you can keep all the money. So what's Abram gonna do? Let's pick back up our narrative. And Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. He says, I've taken a vow. I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. I'm not even gonna take a thread. Lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. This is a great picture of Abram remaining faithful to God. 
I love this picture. Abram, in the face of immediate wealth, in the face of instant gratification, in the face of the promises of having all of this money given to him right out of the gate, he says, no, I will trust in the promises of God. I'm not gonna take the king of Sodom's dirty money. I am going to, in fact, give a tenth of everything I have to the king of Salem as an act of worship to God. Didn't see that one coming. Abram just went and won a, a major victory. The king of Salem shows up out of nowhere and Abram says, yeah, I'm gonna give 10%. I'm gonna give a tithe of all of my possessions to him. Isn't that interesting? Think about just briefly on the subject of tithing. This is where we see tithing sort of first appearing. This practice of giving a tenth portion unto the Lord. That's standard practice throughout the Old Testament. The people of God would give a tithe. Then they would give above and beyond that. There would be sacrifices and offerings that they would give. There were taxes and tributes to be paid. All in all, they probably gave more like 30% to the temple, to the treasury. But they did so as an act of worship and as an act of response to God. A tenth is something that most people will feel, right? If, if you have, you know, $1,000 and that's what you have to live on for the month and you give $100 away, are you going to feel that? You're going to feel that. Let me just help you understand. You will feel that. The practice continues though, but in the New Testament, it actually shifts. The, the practice of tithing is nowhere explicitly taught and carried forward. In fact, it takes on a much different twist. There, there's a story, for example, where, where Jesus is at the temple and this little widow comes in. She's got two coins and she gives them and that's all she has. And Jesus says, she has great faith. There are these people coming in with giant bags of money. They don't feel it. It's not a sacrifice for them. They've got plenty of money to spare. She gave all that she had. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul praises the people of Corinth because they gave uh, out of the overflow of their generosity, sorry, the people of Macedonia, and he praises them. He says, even when you were poor, you still gave money to help take care of others. You guys are like, man, the pastor's talking about money. That's right, I am. <laughs> Think about this. When you're encountering the grace of God the way that Abram did, where have you made those types of choices? Yes, I will take the possessions. Yes, I will take the right now pleasures. I will take the resources. I'll take the plunder versus the heart of Abraham. I wanna give to God. I wanna give him a 10th of everything. I wanna, I wanna just worship. I wanna let God know how much I believe him, how much I trust in his promises. I wanna just give back to Jesus right now. I don't wanna even hold on to any of it. You know, I like this story. I like this picture of Abram's faithfulness, but there's a problem. There's two problems. First of all, we know that Abram didn't always have good days like this. Amen? He had a bad day a couple times where he tried to give his wife away to another king so that he wouldn't get in trouble. Bad day. Next date night probably was not awesome. I sometimes speculate if that was part of the reason why they weren't having children, but I digress. <laughs> I'll, I'll cut that out for the 5 p.m. service. The Abram, Abram wasn't having children. He's starting to panic. He's doubting the promises of God. He and his wife concocted this crazy plan to have Abram go and have a baby with the servant, Hagar, and that did not turn out well. 
I mean, we see Abram here on a good day. This is Abram exercising faithfulness to God. We're so glad for this example. But the problem is, is if I just stand up here and say, look at Abram, look at what a good job Abram did, go and do likewise, you are now left in a place of extreme pressure. Okay, this week, I'm gonna try really hard. Whenever I'm faced with life's choices, I'm gonna try really hard to be good like Abraham in, in this story and not be bad like Abraham in the other stories. I don't know about you, but I am painfully aware of dozens and hundreds and thousands of times when I have been faced with a choice between God's eternal reward, between the blessings that only God can give and, and the, the fleeting pleasures and the riches of this earth where I have taken the lower road. Anybody else aware of that in your own life? Yeah, it'd be great to be faithful like Abram in this moment, but the fact of the matter is I haven't been and I'm not a betting man, but if I were, the odds are not good that I'm gonna be perfect from this day forward. You guys, we need a hero of the story. And let me tell you something. It isn't Abraham and it isn't you or me, it's Jesus. And here, Abram gets to serve also as a type of Christ, as a picture of Jesus, the one who was faithful in every circumstance. This is, this is our Jesus when in Matthew 4, when he was tempted by the devil himself. You have faced temptation, but you have never faced temptation from the devil himself. Here Satan is offering to Jesus, I will give you all of the nations of the world. I will give you all of the riches. A weird thing to offer to the one who created the heavens and the earth. But still, this was Satan's strategy. Jesus, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world if you will just bow down and worship me. What, is, what does Jesus say? Nuh-uh. I'm not gonna take your easy road, Satan. I'm going to follow the more difficult path, the one at the end of the road that has eternal blessings from my heavenly father. And Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, on the night of his arrest, he surrendered to God's will. You remember the prayer that he prayed in the garden? Father, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. Hey, hey God, is there a different way for the salvation of your people besides me being betrayed and beaten and mocked and crucified? Is there a different way? If so, I would love to talk to you about it. However, Jesus prayed the most important prayer that's ever been prayed. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In that moment, Jesus did not take the easy way out. He didn't say, I'll say no to temporary pain. He says, I'm fixing my eyes on something greater. Hebrews chapter uh, 12, when we get there later in our study, we'll see that Jesus despised the shame of the cross because he was focused on a greater joy. And what was that joy? Our salvation. Our salvation. If there are anybody here that's, that's not a Christian, I want to dispel a myth for you. Many people believe this myth in our culture that being a Christian is all about being a good person. You have to learn how to do the right thing. You have to sit up straight and eat your vegetables. Don't do bad things. Only do the things that God says. We want to live lives that are pleasing to God, but being a Christian is about admitting the fact that we have all royally screwed up. And we are in desperate need of a rescuer. We are in desperate need of someone to help us, someone who was always faithful to God. And church, it is not me. 
It is not any of our pastors. It is not any of our community group leaders. It's not Father Abraham. We have one hope and one hope alone, and his name is Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is that because of his faithfulness, anyone who trusts in Jesus can be counted as though they were as faithful as Jesus. There's a verse that the apostle Paul writes, says, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. We are united with Christ. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see us as the cowards who take the temporary pleasures. He looks at us as though we were as faithful as Jesus. And here's the great news. It even gets better. The more we believe that, the more we trust in Jesus' faithfulness, not our own, the more we actually become faithful. That gospel message, that truth, actually changes us and transforms us. We start to look and act and choose more like Jesus. Isn't that good news? Jesus died on the cross in our place. Jesus rose again. And because he was faithful, God says, Jesus, I'm giving you an inheritance. I'm giving you all of the riches of the universe. Jesus gets the universe as his inheritance. And if you place your faith in Jesus, do you know what you get? The same inheritance that Jesus gets. It's like, it's like saying, I'm just taking all my chips, I'm going all in, I'm on team Jesus, and I expect that the reward is gonna be eternal. Yeah, I might have to say no to some things here and now. Yeah, I might make some decisions that don't make sense to my coworkers or my boss or my financial advisor. I might have to make some decisions that from an earthly perspective, they don't have a lot of sense, but from an eternal perspective, they make all the sense in the world. It's not about our faithfulness, it's about Jesus' faithfulness. And I, I believe by focusing on his faithfulness, ours actually will increase. <laughs> don't focus on your faithfulness, focus on his. Lots of ways we could talk about making good decisions. I mean, like I said, we could do a whole sermon series. I could talk to you about how important it is to pray when you're faced with a decision. That's good. I could talk to you about how important it is to have community, friends, relationship, people in your life that can help talk to you about your decisions. I could talk to you about patience and wisdom from the Proverbs. How do we make these decisions? But really, at the end of the day, the big picture, the thing I want to leave you with today is the choices you're going to make, do they even make sense in the light of this eternal reward that we've been given in Christ. A million years from now, when we're sitting around in heaven, just singing and worshiping and feasting with Jesus, the decisions you're facing this week, are they gonna make sense? Yeah, I was focused on the eternal reward. Yeah, I was focused on Jesus. Or no, I was totally short-sighted and focused on the riches from the king of Sodom. Let me close with this quote from John Calvin. We are not our own. Should get an amen on that one, right? We are not our own. Therefore, neither our reason nor our will should predominate in our deliberations and actions. We shouldn't lean on our own mental power, our own desires, first and foremost in our choices and actions. We are not our own. Therefore, let us not propose it as our end to seek what may be expedient or to seek what may be easy for us according to the flesh. We are not our own, therefore let us, as far as possible, forget ourselves and all things that are ours. On the contrary, we are God's. To him, therefore, 
Let us live and die. We are God's. Therefore, let his wisdom and will preside in all our actions. Amen and amen. Church, I'm gonna call you now to a time of responding to this good news. I'm gonna call you to respond to this faithful Jesus. And the first way we're gonna respond is through the giving of our tithes and our offerings. So I'd like to ask the financial stewards to come forward and collect the offering if they would. And let me just say to you, some of you, maybe your hearts were stirred by what I spoke of with generosity and worshiping God with your finances. But I wanna, I wanna make absolutely clear, God says in his word in 2 Corinthians that he loves a cheerful giver. So don't let me or anyone else arm twist you into giving. I want you to ask yourself, is my heart rejoicing in giving? And is my heart sacrificial? Do I feel it? And so I encourage you to give from that heart. No guilt, no obligation. If you're a guest, there's no expectation for you to give. And I just encourage you to give as God would lead you in worship to him. Let's go over a few questions, things to talk about this week in our community groups. First, just be vulnerable and open up. Where in your life have you made poor choices when you were brought low? Or where have you made poor choices when you were on top of the world? Uh, I didn't say talk about good choices you've made because I don't want community group to be a brag session. So uh, let's just talk about all our terrible decisions we've made. Really fun week at community group. Number two, where in your life is God asking you to make a choice to honor him, maybe even in spite of short-term rewards? Number three, how do the people, ceremonies, and events of the Old Testament serve to point us to Jesus? Maybe you have a particular favorite story or character figure. How do those things point us to Jesus as a type of him? And number four, Jesus always chose God's will in the long term rather than short-term rewards. How does that truth help us, change us, correct us, and inspire us? And a couple things to pray about this week too. Pray that God would enable us to make choices that would be honoring to him and bring him glory. And pray for those who are not yet Christians that they would come to know this great king and priest his name is Jesus. We're gonna celebrate with bread and wine. We're gonna gather around the Lord's table together, just like Abram and Melchizedek did thousands of years before, this ancient practice. But for us, it has more clear meaning than it did for Abram. Here we see that the promises of God came true in the broken body of Jesus and the blood that was spilled out of Jesus. And that in his broken body and his spilled blood, we find our healing and our redemption and our forgiveness. And I would encourage you today, as you come to the table, don't focus on your faithfulness. Don't take communion. Thank you, God, I've been so faithful. Definitely don't do that. And don't come to the table, God, help me be more faithful. Come to the table and say, God, thank you that you've been faithful. And let this bread and wine serve as a reminder to you of the gospel of grace that we've received. And we're gonna sing. Riley and our friends from Calvary Fellowship are going to lead us in songs. This first one may be a little bit new for some of you, but it's a simple prayer. It actually comes right from the Lord's Prayer, and it, it talks about, God, would you lead us and would you guide us? Would you help us to remember that in you we have everything we need? We don't need to grasp for the pleasures or the riches of this earth. We have everything we need in you. And so I invite you to sing it out loud and just to lift your voices and lift your hands as we respond to Jesus. Let's stand together and I'll pray. And we'll begin our time of singing in response. Father, we confess you are good and we're thankful that you are good in spite of our not goodness. God, we thank you that Jesus is always faithful. Though we have failed a million times, Jesus has never failed. 
So Jesus, we come to worship you and to celebrate you around this bread and wine, joining in a practice that our father Abraham did so many thousands of years ago. God, we're, we're here to celebrate, Lord Jesus, that your body was broken and your blood was spilled out. And Holy Spirit, I pray and invite you right now to fill our hearts with your joy and fill our lips with your praises, God, so we could rejoice in a faithful God who gives us all that we need. May our hearts be content in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.